Governor, Premier, so many distinguished guests, I'm so pleased to be here. If you permit me to begin, maybe to speak in the language of many of the women who came here. To firkin ohasaram vehensha agus mit eg komore dinia to firhovakta kistarna herin agus kremila mahagi asaktan mida to janta ki kunan kuvna kancha akarer and seal. May I acknowledge, with like you, Governor, the first occupants of this land, who for tens of thousands of years negotiated with its possibilities and its challenges and developed one of the oldest cultures in the world, one that valued symmetry with nature, ancient wisdom, and practical balances of ecology and economy. I honour their elders, present and past. Maragurt mes moranoshis a hagenshet am mavein or mask new, egan a koit star ol shagas tom harave buikti vasaltur gure chiok the gas korta gorta hobat. If I may immediately translate and continue in the other language that we use in Ireland, I want to say what a great pleasure it is for Sabine and I and those travelling with me to have the opportunity of visiting Hobart. And I so agree with you, Governor, as to the significance of this event and what it means. Yet another public shared act of, if you like, allowing history from below to inform the major narrative of historiography. What a great honour it is for Sabine and I to be with you at the unveiling of magnificent work by the wonderful Irish sculptor Rowan Gillespie. The poignant statues will commemorate the thousands of women and children who arrived on these shores in chains, many, after a long and tortuous journey. In the Irish language, the title given to Louis Dupuis's famous documentary role of this was Namanah Dibraha. These are, that was, the women forcibly exiled. By way of context, 170 years ago, famine raged through the homes of Ireland. Black 47, 1847, was the nadir of that great hunger that we often couldn't name in Ireland because of its devastation. On Gartha Moor, we called it the great hunger when the peasant population of Ireland was dying in ditches. Relief had been stopped and food continued to be exported as a million people died of hunger and hunger-related diseases, and a further million fled as best they could, and this would become in time two million people gone. I think the majority did so, those fleeing, they did so out of necessity, fleeing poverty, seeking the possibilities of life. It's, I think, probably to seek a new life is too polite a term for it. They sought a new hope, in new circumstances. And today, as President of Ireland, Maruk Heron, I recall that terrible time in our nation's history. When I was speaking last week in Perth, I recalled, for example, of how over 4,000 young women and girls who faced with a bleak outlook in famine-ravaged Ireland were transported, having volunteered, it is claimed, for transportation from the workhouses of Ireland that had been established and I know, listening to your powerful, generous and important speech, Governor, 
and indeed drawing on the work of one of our finest writers, Evelyn Conlon. She, in her wonderfully researched historic novel, Not the Same Sky, recounts the voyage of the Thomas Arbuthnot, for example, which left Plymouth on the 18th of October, 1849, with what was described as a cargo of Irish girls, under the care of Sergeant Superintendent Charles Strutt, from whose diaries we've gained such an insight into the reality of what these women experienced. And the ship reached Botany Bay in February of 1850. Those women were brought to these shores as part of a scheme instigated by Earl Grey, Secretary of State for the Colonies, which was designed specifically to attract women between ages of 14 and 20, women who were needed to address a gender imbalance that had emerged in the Australian colonies. The mindset that would devise such a scheme is in itself something worthy of reflection, something to ponder. Is there not something deeply unsettling in the attitude of those then imperial social engineers such as Earl Grey? Having failed to attract a sufficient number of female settlers, he sees the opportunity of Ireland's famine to pluck young desperate women from the most wretched of conditions, separating them from any surviving relatives they might have had, removing them from the land of their birth and transporting them to the other side of the planet. While they are described in some of the historical records up to now as volunteers, it is worth considering whether they had any choice at all, with starvation and disease ravaging the land, with their daily reality of wretched workhouse conditions, I wonder could they have really opted not to come. As an academic, but particularly as President of Ireland, I have so welcomed the new historiography that is allowing the fullness of these stories and the close examination of experience in the workhouses and in transportation to emerge into the main historical narrative. And it is partly because we are doing that that we have such warm relationships between our neighbouring countries at the present time. Today we are recalling a very specific group of women whom you have described so well, Governor, who were transported from Ireland and Britain as punishment, victims of a harsh judicial system that really valued property above people's lives. And whether it was in either Great Britain or whether it was in Ireland, when one examines the circumstances uh, of these women who were transported, we see how closely it is related to a deeper history of dispossession and vagrancy and so on. The crimes for which they were transported were often petty crimes, it would seem now. The theft of food or a few coins, a watch or a shawl, stolen to try and sustain a starving family, desperate acts of destitute individuals. Some years ago, as an academic, I looked, for example, at an extraordinary difference, the difference in the punishment of a woman forging and a male forger. In the case of the male forger, it was transportation for 14 years. For the woman, it was death, followed by burning. Among them were the people that I just, we're talking about today, were indeed, as you say, 25,000 women, nearly half of them Irish. Half Irish, because they're not all Irish, not far from it. Transported in the dark holes of ships on a 16,000-mile journey to what was for them the other end of the earth. Indeed, Louis de Puer put it well. He refers to them as Manar Thibra, banished women, who had been forced to leave their homeland 
in the most desperate of circumstances. Indeed, as we often say, preceded by a period in the hulks. 13,000 of them arrived on the shores of Van Diemen's land alone, or as was with small children in tow, as you have said, facing an unknown country, an unknown future, with little hope of ever seeing their families and their native island again. Rowan sculptures have their companion pieces in Dublin and Toronto. Unveiled on the 150th anniversary of the Great Famine, he gave us his Dublin sculptures, and Rowan gave a face to the suffering of the many starving people who departed in ships from their homeland. The 160th anniversary of Black 47, he commemorated in Toronto with the unveiling of Rowan's depiction in Ireland Park of those who arrived there in hope again of a new life. Here in Hobart, when he sought to commemorate the 170th anniversary of that dark time, when he needed models for his sculptures, as you have said, Rowan did not need to imagine the women who were forced to make the perilous voyage, for he could meet them. I was particularly moved when I first read, and here again from your, your good self, your Governor, to, that the models for Rowan's sculptures are the descendants of some of these banished women, some of whom are with us here today, and I so honour them and thank them for being with us. It shows an exemplary maturity, I suggest, and depth of understanding in coming to terms with Australia's origins, that Australians are now happy to transact the multiple strands of their identity, including their convict ancestry. To find a convict ancestor is no longer a matter of shame, but can be a cause for reflection and indeed celebration. Because many of these destitute, downtrodden women triumphed, these women and young girls and the choices they made shaped the world in which they lived. They were the founding mothers, as you so aptly put it, of modern Australia, and so it is fitting that we should remember them and that we should celebrate them. And I have to say that as we've been involved in tasks of commemoration in the recent period, one of the great successes of it has been the welcoming of the untold until now women's stories into the main historical narrative. These women on their arrival in Hobart carried the label of convicts. It was not immediately a cause for celebration, though no doubt many were glad to be back on dry land after months spent at sea. As the transportation developed over time, the rigours of the voyage changed, but it was still an enormous, demanding, harrowing journey. For those who arrived with children, as you've said, they had to suffer first the pain of forced separation, as the infants were taken from them and they were incarcerated in conditions that often proved fatal. The women themselves had to survive their own incarceration and beatings, long hours of labour and harsh conditions in which they were housed, and they had to endure assignments to masters as bonded labour. And it is indeed, as you have said, broken into categories of those who were regarded as hopeless and couldn't be reformed, those with possibilities and those suitable for allocation for marriage. In those early years, convict labour was a main resource chosen as a means to build what were then described as the new Australian colonies. Convict women made clothes, cleaned and cooked for the population of the colony 
but became the mothers of this new nation. The resilience, resistance and dogged determination that they needed as women, as mothers, as founders of families to continue to survive and to build new lives seem incredible, but they are to be admired by us all. Their landing in Hobart Town was indeed their first footsteps towards a freedom from hunger, a freedom from dispossession, a freedom from poverty, the poverty that went with vagrancy. And I salute all of the women, the other women as well as the Irish women, who found themselves in these circumstances. And it was also their entry, of course, into a particular form of bondage in terms of incarceration and punishment and in relation to marriage. We should never forget those who did not survive to mother a new generation. Many did not survive the arduous voyage. Many others who did were broken by abuse and the troubles they encountered and by the cruelties and humiliations imposed upon them. We now have the means to remember them and to recall their suffering and sacrifice. And that we are able to do so, we must note, and I acknowledge it, has a certain degree of irony, for we must be grateful to the colonial administrators who recorded so meticulously the details of every woman and child arriving on Hobart's waterfront. We are grateful to the historians, archivists, archaeologists and others who have trawled through these valuable records to bring us the stories of these women. Their work is invaluable in aiding our understanding of the women's lives and the circumstances under which they came here. They have rescued these women from obscurity, as these statues do, and as your great work in making these statues possible does. They have restored their historical importance to both of our nations. I have often spoken as President of Ireland of the ethics of memory and the importance of not setting boundaries on what we recall. I have said already that this has been useful in our own Irish experience of reflection on the famine, on our colonial past and on the choices that were made and not made before and after the independence of the Irish state. It has also been important in our effort of recent decades to forge a better future in the island of Ireland from a legacy of division and bloodshed. Exploring the less palatable parts of our history has, I believe, allowed us to come to a fuller understanding of ourselves and our neighbours and our world past and present. And the women and children we're remembering today were just some of the victims of a brutal and brutalising imperial regime that in many respects cared little for human life or dignity. They were not the only victims, of course. We need only think of what befell and what was perpetrated upon the Palava. Those who occupied Tasmania for tens of thousands of years before the arrival of the Europeans, original occupants who were brought to the brink of extension in the 19th century. They are also victims who should be remembered. And I have in earlier speeches since I came a week ago spoken and acknowledged the Irish participation in part of that, those experiences. We should recall that it was within this ruthless and in many ways inhumane environment that these women and children were incarcerated. I do take this opportunity then to join with you, Governor, Prime Minister and Premier and all of you great friends here today to congratulate the project team who have worked so hard to bring this vision to fruition. John Kelly, 
Professor Lucy Frost, Joe Lincoln, and my apologies if I've got your name wrong, Carol Edwards, and so many others that you've already mentioned, Governor, who have combined their various skills and expertise over a number of years to achieve the goal of telling what was previously this untold story. Their reward is the monument, one that records not just skill and art, and it does that, but one that does so while communicating a real passion. I congratulate and thank you all on the job so beautifully executed. I also wish to thank Hobart City Council, the Tasmanian State Government, and all, literally everybody, that you have mentioned so much more fully and adequately, who have supported this project in any way. As I conclude, may I say we are defined as a people, among other things, by what we choose to commemorate. In choosing to commemorate the convict women, the city of Hobart has also chosen to acknowledge and recognise its convict past and to celebrate the indomitable spirit of those convicts who survived and then went on to thrive and build a new home. These sculptures, let us remind ourselves, make common cause with the suffering too of the migrants of our times. They should remind us that the trauma of displacement and forced exile, for many reasons, are not experiences confined to our past, but are the lived experiences of millions today around the world, including many who now call Australia home. For us in Ireland, migration is part of Ireland's past and our present, and it defines our nation. We often recall the men and women who achieved success or notoriety. People such as Edmund Dwyer Gray, no relation to Earl Gray, who was born to an Irish nationalist family in Dublin in 1870 and went on to become the Premier of Tasmania in 1939. But we also now recall the millions who left Ireland to lead quieter existences, trying to survive, trying to make a better life for their children and for their communities. We Irish are a migratory people, so much more than a sedentary one. It is reflected in every aspect of our being. It places responsibility on us too. As to our response to contemporary migration, the Irish have always been leaving, returning at times to leave again. There are more than 70 million worldwide who claim Irish ancestry, more than 2 million in Australia. Ireland's relationship with its diaspora is enshrined in our constitution, Bonrock Naherin, which states that the Irish nation cherishes its special affinity with people of Irish ancestry living abroad who share its cultural identity and heritage. Among this diaspora are the descendants of the Irish convict women who left unwillingly but whose legacy we are celebrating today. And in recalling those special Irish women and children that we are remembering, we are acknowledging them as part of both of our nations. Your nation, our nation. I am reminded of that great ballad that Delia Murphy sang. Who was Delia Murphy was the wife of Ireland's first ambassador to Australia. And she sang in her song, the Connemara Cradle Song, May no one who is dear to our island be lost. Blow the winds gently, can be the foam. Shine the light brightly and guide them back home. Thank you so much again. Got a meal of my gilead. I thank all of you who have come today 
for this such important event. I thank you on behalf of Sabine and I and all those who are travelling with me for the invitation that you sent me on Quira Hulchitam. We are, of course, all united in common cause to give us, all of you who work so hard, to give us what is for us such an important monument, this memory. Thank you all so much and thank you for the opportunity of being with you on such this very important occasion for both of our nations.